It's early, and I always wonder because you're like sometimes tweeting out at twelve thirty at night, and then you're up at six somehow. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't sleep. I don't know, um, I don't know what happened. I think, I think it changed. It started to change when I turned thirty, and then when I had a kid, I think it went into, I think it went into full effect. Yeah, no, I hear that. Um, how did did you guys get any snow up there? Yeah, we got, I don't know, it was probably only like four inches, but then it started doing the freezing rain on top of it. So That's fun. Um, yeah, it was kind of a pain to clean up. So that's why I was like, all right, let, let's talk around now, get get the family stuff situated, and then we can get you know to our next obsession. So this is it. This is the podcast. We're just going right into it. Perfect. I love it. This is great. This is, and this is a fitting... This is a fitting 50th episode of this thing because <laughs> we went into it with very little plan for what the hell we were going to do. And um, this morning we kind of decided that uh, we weren't going to have much of a plan for what we were going to do other than a, a very tentative outline of things that have been that have been going on of late. But before before we get to that, um, how, was your, how was your Saturday night, uh, JB? Would you, yeah, what would you spend it doing? <laughs> I think you saw I got on a, a little kick with uh, Moutier and Frank. I mean, it's funny because I think what I proved to myself last night is you could spend a year and a half tweeting about why you think Frank has value and why um, you know it might make sense to focus on his development. And then in a series of two or three tweets – that just at least offer perspective on maybe why the Knicks uh, like Moutier or maybe why his it's not guaranteed that he's gone next year. Um, you can then read your mentions and realize that it, that year and a half didn't matter. Now everyone's only going to judge you on those three tweets you just sent. <laughs> well, the, and that's it. the ability that, that you have to argue both sides of the position means that you should have been an attorney um, because that's the, that's kind of what they teach you to do in law school, I think, more than anything else. Is not get too married to any position, which is kind of yeah, yeah. Which is kind of funny because that's probably um, that's pro. I, I I don't know. Part of me wants to say that that that's the most important thing or quality a front office could have if you're running a basketball team is to is to never get too married to any position um, or any player or, yeah, or any, any yeah, any player. Um, you know, but then at the same time, I, you know, I think we there the, there's all the criticisms that, that have gone around about that they haven't, I don't know, properly given the developmental time to Frank. I, I don't know. I was just getting annoyed because, like, I have my own personal opinions about Frank and his ceiling, and I have my own personal opinions about Moutier and his ceiling, and I have—I think they're pretty close, pretty close to yours, 
just based on the conversations that we've had. But it's like I this <laughs> them playing Moutier and and giving him the time. People are making it out to be like you know uh, Jeff Hornacek playing um, Courtney Lee over over Damian Dotson last year, and it's just. That's not yeah, or even uh, Jared, Jared Jack there, right? I yeah, mean, or over Jack Frank, over right? Frank, I mean, yeah. well, I guess that, and you know, for people listening that were, I guess, referring to some conversation we had last night on Twitter, I guess, just to give a little background. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think the the thought is what what we see people say a lot, and this is not just say fans on Twitter, but even within the media, is Emmanuel Mudiay had a twelve million dollar cap hold, and therefore he has no future with the team. Frank is obviously two years younger, two years more team control. So it just makes more sense to play Frank more because he's going to be on your team longer. He's a younger piece. He's a part of your future. Moody is not. And what uh, I think we, we kind of talked to two different sides of that point. And, and mine was looking at the numbers and looking at how much minutes Frank has played this year. It's a, he's averaged about five minutes less per game than Moody you can get into who cares about the minutes. It's about which lineups he plays for. But then you could counter that by saying, well, you know, he's actually played more with Mitchell Robinson. Maybe that's actually a good thing. Um, but my point was just simply, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's as grave of an injustice as people think that Moutier is averaging five more minutes a game per game than Frank. If, this is the big if I guess I'm putting in it. You are thinking like the Knicks might be thinking, and that is who cares if Frank has two more years of team control. If they don't like him on their team, they will decide to use his value in another way, which might be by trading him. Versus if they like Moutier, they might decide to bring him back, and his cap hold only matters in the rare instance where you actually use all of your cap space this summer and then still want to sign Moutier to go over the cap, which I think, even though we're all optimistic, I wouldn't say that's probable to happen. I would say that might happen, but I wouldn't say it's probable. Well, I, so yeah, that, no, that's where I guess I was I was coming from, just to kind of reset where we where we were talking last night. And then I think you had a little a little spin off from that, but but go ahead. No, I, and I even want to take it a step further. Which is that let's let's put aside the issue of which one of these two at this point in their career you could make a case for. All right, this guy is going to be the better player because obviously I'm I'm king of Frank Island, um, and yet I have to acknowledge the fact that he is again I've said it a few times of late he is the worst again depending on your addition of your definition of high usage player he's the worst high usage shooter in the entire league. That is an indisputable fact. It is. It is what well, it is. Well, and the, the other part, because I was looking at this recently for the piece I'm working on, is it's funny. The only other player that had a true shooting percentage, um, or I shouldn't say the only. There was, I think, about ten players that had a true shooting percentage as low as Frank's last season, who were the same age and shot the same volume. And the only player who had the exact same true shooting percentage of those 10, funny enough, was Moutier. But if you then look at Moutier's year two number, it actually jumps quite a bit, where Frank's has done the opposite. It's gone down, which means 
it's not just, you know, like, I guess like you're saying, but I guess I'm doubling down on it. If, uh, as much as we talk about all the value Frank adds other than shooting, the reason why it's still, I think, a discussion is because we're not saying, well, you know, he's a so-so shooter. So as long as he does all these other things, it's okay. We're literally saying he is one of the worst shooters we have ever seen through two years of basketball, even given his age and given the amount of shots he takes. And the question is, with that known, how much then other value do you have to, I guess, offset that with? Yeah, and, and we could color that that statistic with if you take out that 16-game stretch in the middle of the season where he was clearly in his own head, he's you know shooting roughly 40% from three, we can, we can color it with the fact that they, his role has been you know tugged around a little bit. We could color it with the fact that um, they were you know trying him in, in some different positions and, and different things, changing the way he approaches the game. We could throw all that in. And I do throw all that in when I consider what type of player he could be eventually. But that's my viewpoint. And for me to sit here and say that the Knicks, for the Knicks to potentially have a different viewpoint, which is that, hey, at this point, you know what? We don't know which of these two guys is going to be the better player long term. I can't sit here and say that's not valid. Like, because I don't, and this is where it's in my personality to defer to, like, people who do this stuff for a living. If there are people who are, are scouts and, like, they're, and they're in the practice with these guys and every day and, and the whole thing, and they're like, you know what? It's six of one, half dozen the other. And then that gets us back to the, the discussion that we started with this, which is the, the money situation. And here's where I want to actually throw something else out there to you. If at this rate, I would argue that Emmanuel Moutier, if he was on the open market this summer, which he will be, um, is somewhere around a four to five million dollar a year player. Would you say that that's fair? Um, yeah, and it, it that well, it's funny. This is actually another project that I'm starting on because you know me, I'm crazy with these uh, cap stuff. Yes, right? <laughs> and I know where you're going with this. Is that? Um, I do want to look a little bit, uh, and I haven't, I've always wanted to do this, but I just haven't had the time uh, last year with all the film stuff, but um, I kind of want to look at how much, knowing how much cap space is going to be out there this summer, um, and the players that are available, yeah, where where it is more likely someone like Moutier would fall, but I think just based on like, okay, back of the envelope, based on his production and we're not going into all those details I'm talking about. I think what you're saying is, you know, is fair that he would probably be, I think maybe a $6 million, like, and it depends on the term too, right? So if he did three years, $18 million, do we think that's insane that someone could offer that? I, I don't know, but yeah, I, around there seems to make sense. I think that's the high end of what he would get. Now, fast forward to the summer. Extinguish his cap hold. What you renounce renounces you know whatever right you have to him. So now he's an unrestricted free agent. There's one of two scenarios that's going to happen: either the Knicks don't use all their cap space, at which point um, you can easily sign him to um, and uh, overpay for one year, throw a second year team option in there. And boom, you have his rights for another two years, the same amount of time that you have Frank's rights for. 
the alternative option. The Knicks actually, you know, hit hit the lottery, Kevin Durant comes, and then at that point, all you have is your room exception. Guess what Emmanuel Moutier is going to do if Kevin Durant's here and KP comes back and they have their draft pick and they're set up for success? He's going to be like, wait a minute, I have a chance to potentially be the point guard for this team in this city with this coach who believed in me. I would bet you dollars to donuts he is signing the room exception for us in that scenario. So if you go on this premise that I just laid out, which I think is there's nothing unrealistic about it, then you're looking at Frank and you're looking at Moutier, same cost, roughly, you know, same number of years. And then you throw in the fact that according to everybody, Moutier has zero trade value right now, which fine, I'm not going to disagree with that. Frank brings with him the added layer of the fact that, guess what? Some team would actually probably give up a real asset to attain Frank. So I guess my point is that it's a twofold point. One, the deeper we get into this thing, the the more it doesn't make sense, all these people who are saying, oh, this Moutier stuff is a waste of time because of, of the scenario I just laid out. But this is the part, the second part is what really annoys me. And you tell me if I'm being overly sensitive here because I rely on you for this because you are my, you are my consciousness. You are my, the, the, the one that I don't <laughs> no, have. No, that's a good thing, but yeah, go No, on. it is a good thing. It bothers me that when people talk about how they're handling Frank and how they're handling Moutier, there is an assumption of incompetence. And I'm not going to peg it all on the media, but I think it is largely from some members of the media. Whereas, in listen, if in the past you wanted to do that with this franchise, 100%. They deserved it. But if you look at everything else that they've done right since Perry came aboard in terms of how they've approached bringing along young players, in terms of the decision-making process, bringing guys in, evaluating talent, bringing along that talent, to me... To, to maintain that assumption of, oh, uh, look at these ass clowns. They don't know what they're doing with their point guard situation. Ha ha, same old Knicks. That doesn't hold water anymore because look at everything else they've done. Am I, like, and it's, maybe it's uh, wrong of me for being so sensitive, but it gets under my skin and it bothers me. So there, that's, that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's like anything, right? It's partially true. So meaning we think based on this past draft. And it's funny because with Trier going undrafted, it always messes up how I want to define the draft because I always want to say they found three players from this draft, but obviously he's undrafted. <laughs> but the point is they found three players on draft night. I think they ended up signing him literally that night. Um, it may have been 12.01 a.m. I don't know. I got to check that. Right, something, something like that, right? <laughs> so I think we think... Uh, and not just we, but I think basketball observers, I'll call them. So people that aren't necessarily even attached to the Knicks, they might be media from other cities, national outlets, whatever. I think a lot of people think that the Knicks have a really good shot of having, I'll say, two of those three players turn into, you know, real assets. Mitchell Robbins, likely, right? I think... We know from even stretching back to Kristaps Porzingis, I mean, he was the fourth overall pick. You could argue, okay, well, you know, because the Knicks picked fourth, if they had picked second, they wouldn't have taken KP. They would have taken one of these other guys that didn't turn out too well, whatever. But the point is, 
they did with the fourth pick, not even a top three pick, with the fourth pick found the hardest thing to find, and that is a potential franchise player. So when you kind of add that together, I think your point of, you know, looking at their record, how do we say these guys don't know what they're talking about when it seems like, you know, and I guess Frank, it's obviously the other piece we have to talk about as the eighth overall pick. Um, you know, is their record really as bad as people suggest? I think the reason it's partially true is because we just don't know yet. We got to see that, that those things happen. Um, but I think you're, you know, I think it's fair to say there's that the potential that they are actually a good drafting team. I mean, even with Dotson in the second round, yeah, uh, right. I mean, and I know some of this we're mixing some people that have now left the front office or come back. But you know, as friends of ours at the Daily News remind us, there has been one constant. His name is Steve Mills. So if we're going to say he's constant to criticize things he's done then we'd have to say, well, he's also been constant through these different drafts where, like I said, they they have found a lot of value even without picking necessarily in the top three picks. So I think that's fair. I just think, like I said, we, we still got it. I mean, it is possible that Knox or, you know, it's possible Mitchell Robinson is a fun player that blocks a lot of shots, but he never learns how to set the screen right. He never, you know, his offensive game doesn't develop, whatever. The point is, it's possible it could turn the other way, and then you know Frank Isola will be the first to laugh at us. But um, <laughs> I think anyone being honest needs to at least say that the young group they have has the potential to be a solid young group. In which case, yeah, they 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 deserve credit for that. Um, Moutier, if you want to add in these reclamation projects, um, that that's another example, right? I mean, Moutier and Vonley, I don't. I never know how much is it those players came here, the Knicks staff then did something to develop them and that's why they're playing well versus the Knicks created an environment that allowed those players to come and play well. And I think there's a difference there, but that's something that's kind of interesting to tease out. What are your thoughts on that for those two players? Uh, I think, I think so the the thing that I've probably liked the most about the Perry regime, um, which we are now uh, 18 months and change into, is that from, I want to say day one, essentially, he came in here and he said, we're in talent acquisition mode. But then just as soon as he made the decision, like, holy shit, um, this team sucks. Uh, there's not a lot, there's not, it's not athletic. You know, we, we've read about the game that him and Steve Mills went to, I guess it was last season where they played the Lakers. Right. And they, they made the very clear observation like, Oh my God, we're one of the least athletic teams in the league. Um, we're not athletic. We don't have a whole lot of talent and we don't have a lot of young talent. And they went, the, the moment they made the decision to get, you know, basically more talent through the door. I the, that in and of itself is meaningless if you don't know what to do with that talent once it gets here, and that's why I think the real feather in the cap for this regime is the fact that they instituted a plan. Like, all right, we're gonna revamp our development system, which they've done through the G League, through some other behind-the-scenes stuff that we've read about in different articles, and then they brought in not only a coach who's gonna foster that development, 
but they allowed him to hire a staff that was going to foster that development. So while Noah Vonley gets all the credit in the world for, you know, as we've read, carrying around a whatever gallon jug of water with him yeah, all right. summer, you know, and, and, and filling that thing up and, and doing all that. And Moutier, he, he came in, I think, 15 pounds lighter too. Um, they get all the credit in the world for that. All the credit in the world. But do those things – first of all, is Moutier even on the team come training? I, you know, I could see if they hired another coach um, – that he would have been out the door before practices yeah. started. Well, I think, and that's really my biggest thought of why, again, you know, and, and he can't have out every time you say something, but it's like the, the whenever I'm talking about Moutier's future with the team, it's not so much me personally championing that I believe he is better than another option. It's just like you're mentioning, I mean, a big part of Moutier's still being here and Moutier getting the playing time he's getting, et cetera, is because obviously the coach seems to like him. And I just think that's going to matter when they're making decisions going forward of, you know, that, that he likes them. So I, I guess I just wanted to add that, that part in about Moutier. Um, and, and, and just on that, like there has been so much out there. On like Fizz's favorites, Fizz clearly has his favorites. Fizz, Fizz's decision making process, this, that, and the other thing. I again, I'm gonna lean on you. Call bullshit on me right now if if you need to. Where is the deference to the fact that this guy was part of arguably the most successful coaching tree? Um, in and when I when I, I say that very very pointedly, because not only did he coach under Spo, he got the leadership of Riley as well. So point to me another coaching situation in the league that, and, and, you know, again, find a national media person, find a player that other than Marcus all that has, that has a bad word to say about this guy and you can't find one. So now where, how many games are we in? 44 games of a season in which, by the way, this team continues to go out there and play hard against far better competition. Like, where is the deference? Where is the deference that maybe this guy actually, God forbid, knows what he's doing in terms of trying out these different combinations, you know, trotting out these guys and, and, you know, maybe having a belief in certain things that these players could do that maybe the rest of us don't see? Like, I, Yeah, I mean, I think the, the issue is he needs to have some sort of sustained success as, you know, head coach. And then when he does that and you add in the pedigree of where he comes from, you start building up these stories like we do for other coaches, you know, about, the, you know, the, as you described, the whole coaching tree and how it makes sense. But I think because, unfortunately, while, you know, he had some moderate success in Memphis, it wasn't sustained success. He's on a team now. He doesn't have a chance with the talent right now to have success. I think I think that's probably where it comes from. I also think because he's not the type of coach who makes X's and O's nerds get excited. See, now that's that's fair. If you want to call his like, oh, he doesn't have great out of uh, timeout, out of, time out, out of uh, sideline, out of bounds place, like that's totally fair. Totally, totally right, 100% that, fair. What I'm saying is that I think if you think, if you think about how does buzz generate around, say, a coach, I think the way it, it's done is these, I'll call them influencers, so you have what normally happens is you'll have a coach 
on a team that's not very good, meaning most people aren't paying attention except the basketball nerds, right? And then those nerds who are watching it and are able to, you know, like the Zach Lowe types who are able to then put out a piece to say, oh, this guy is doing all, or uh, Kevin Arnovitz, they're doing all these innovative things and they're more likely to note these innovative things being, I think, in the X's and O's realm than, than in the locker room necessarily, you know, um, in terms of like building up confidence, et cetera. I think that's usually what starts it. And I think because Fisdale doesn't, he's not that type of coach that we've seen yet, not saying he can't be, you don't get that same kind of buzz. So therefore it literally is, okay, we know it seems like he's got guys playing with some confidence, but yet we're looking at the record. We need to see more. I just think it's harder to make the case. It's easier when you can at least point to you know, and you know, if football is the same case as we have the championship games, I'm hoping the Patriots finally lose today. Is fuck Tom Brady. Sorry. Exactly. There you go. Is these assistants, whether it's offensive coordinator, you know, mostly the guys that end up getting those head coaching jobs are the guys that people are like, oh, they're trying different things on offense, and you know, they're thinking outside the box. I, I, we just haven't seen that with Fizdale. So well, I, I guess they, that that's why I think. That buzz is not there for him the way it would be for like a, a buttonholzer or someone like that. So that's where that's where I want to jump in with stats because there are certain things coaches can improve and there are certain things coaches can't improve. One thing a coach can't do is make shots for you. And hey, shocker, Knicks are last in the league in every cognizable field goal percentage metric. But then you look at the other stuff. They're eighth in turnover percentage in terms of the eighth lowest turnover percentage they don't give they don't turn the ball over they generate a a higher share of turnovers than they have in in quite some time on defense um they are 13th in free throw rate um they're getting to the line they're they're uh 14th in shots in the paint they're 14th in above the uh, percentage of above the break threes um, they are like there's there's all of these like little signs of progress that when you consider the talent that this team has, that's what it that's what bothers me. Is like no, we're not like <laughs> like okay, people will point to the Hawks as the example of like here's a crappy team that they're doing more stuff than the Knicks were able to do. Well, guess what? That crappy team has to happens to be gifted with a lot more shooting and actually a lot more two-way players as opposed to the Knicks who have like the dearth of, of, of talent. So yeah. I, I just – my point is that there are signs there if you want to see them. And I feel like because he's in New York, um, it, it, he gets he a gets short end of the stick. Um, and I, I just – you know. I think that I think that sucks, but that's me. Yeah, no, no, I, I hear you. Um, one thing I was thinking about too, as we were going through that, that uh, I wanted to talk about was with Bonley, because I put out the piece earlier this week of why the Knicks should trade him, and we were kind of talking about the value of you know these players that they signed to the to the one year deal, and um, in terms of speaking to the Knicks' ability to maybe develop them. And by the but, way, uh, good good job by you giving credit to the guy on Twitter who pointed out that um, the one advantage they do have if they kept him would be then taking his early bird rights into the summer of 2020. Right, right. You, so, so 
So real quick, I guess, if the premise of why you should trade him is that because he only signed a one-year deal with the Knicks without a team option, and that could be a whole other debate, could were the Knicks in a position, if, if Vonley wanted to sign a one-year prove-it deal so that he can make more money this summer, I, I would buy that more if it was all guaranteed money. But he signed a non-guaranteed deal, which makes me think if the Knicks just gave him guaranteed money in year one, you probably could have got a team option in year two. And the reason a team option matters is because under the, the rules of the CBA, you only you get early bird rights by staying with the team for two consecutive years. But to the point of now that they did only sign him to a one-year deal, you can still get early bird rights by signing him to another one-year deal this summer, but you lose that ability if you trade him. Because once you trade him, Yes. And then he becomes a free agent and you sign him. He technically changed teams. So you no longer get his early bird rights. So the argument to keep him would be maybe this summer, even though he's played better, you could still get him for like a one year, like high value contract because you didn't sign anyone else. And then next summer you have his early bird rights. You re-sign him long term with whatever free agents. But my point of why they should trade him is they don't have his bird rights. So you Normally, the reason this doesn't happen a lot is because it's rare for a team in the NBA to have a player that is young, who is productive, meaning teams want him in the trade market, and you don't have any advantage in re-signing him. Because most teams, if you have an advantage to re-sign a pending free agent, you want to keep that advantage. And the advantage comes through having their bird rights. So since the Knicks don't have any advantage, and his cap hold, because he's making basically league minimum, is uh, is so low, or I shouldn't even say his capital. The amount that they can offer him is so low; it's only twenty percent off this minimum without, salary. The amount they could offer him without using cap space. Exactly. So, meaning they are going to need to use cap. If for everyone who's like, I want to see Vonley next to KP, they finally found someone I like, and now you want to trade them. All those points are fine. I'm just saying you would need to use cap space to sign him, whether you trade him or whether you keep him. So if you want to kind of have two things at once, you trade him to a contender. You hope that he's not angry with you because he gets to A, play for a contender, and B, probably drive up his market value even more, getting more exposure in that situation. And then if you re-sign him, great. You now have him and don't re-sign him. You didn't lose him for nothing. So that. That sort of sums up, I guess, where I'm going with that. We haven't talked in person about your thoughts on all that. Do you, where are you thinking, like, in terms of that reasoning? Do you have different thoughts? I mean, what, what's your thought on that idea? To me, I, I think, we talked, I was on, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, Knicks Fan TV yesterday, and we touched on this a little bit. And I, I think it, I think it really comes down to, I think it really comes down to specifically what it is that they're they'd be getting, um, because I, I've been screaming from the rooftops. If there's a good deal, trade him and don't think twice for the exact reasons that that you laid out. Um, I I, I guess the thing that I'm, so let me I'll say this: if they could use him and uh, to dump Lee's money. I think you do it in a heartbeat. Um, I, I think even if you, 
use him and like one of those Charlotte second rounders to dump Lee's money. I would even I'd probably do that. Would you do that? I don't know. Um, that's uh, probably right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. To me, it's like a short decision cycle on what I would, um, what I would trade finally for. Because, like I said, I just see it as it's all just money in the bank. So if I'm also getting something else, like moving uh, salary, then it's like, you know, to me that's perfect. Yeah, the only the only thing I guess I'm I'm on the fence about is it is if it's like. You know, if it's a second round pick, that's probably going to fall somewhere in the 40s. Oh, you're saying because we have, but remember, you would have to probably give that up anyways just to move um, Courtney Lee's salary on on its own, right? So you're basically saying, well, no, if I'm, you I'm, can't move Courtney Lee's salary by just attaching a second round pick, which you probably can't. The other thing you're adding is bond length. Yes, and, and I would work, do that. Right? Yeah, I would okay. do that, and and I guess the the only question comes. I mean, obviously, if you could get a first round pick, I don't care how protected it is. I don't care how many years out it is. If you get a first round pick for Vonley, you do it, and you <laughs> you don't think twice. the The decision for me would come down to um, like some of the things that have been tossed around. Like uh, I guess Philly has um, uh, Chicago's second round pick this year. Like that's obviously going to be a very good pick. If you could get that pick, I think I think you do it. Um, if you can get another pick in like the high, like the low thirties, you know, from some other team, I think you do it. If it's a pick in like the forties, I, that's where I'm, that's where it would be a tough decision for me. If it, if it was one of yeah. these like top 50 protected jobs that like goes, that vanishes into thin air, you know, if it doesn't convey this year, that I would not do. So yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm ninety. It's I wouldn't like trade him away at the first possible deal, but I would I'd be very liberal in terms of of what I'm what I'm giving him for. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. No. No. I think I think we're on the same page with I that, think, and you'll yeah, see no, what the market you know comes up with for him. If it is like something like a late, I mean, if it's anything within the first round, even if it's the last pick, I mean, you know, that would be great. Um, I think, like you say, it's that sec. If you're getting into the second round, and then if it's a contender, you got to hope that contender has maybe someone else's pick, because their pick would obviously then be pretty late in the second round, and then you're kind of wondering, is it worth potentially upsetting the continuity that you have, etc. Um, but I think you know we're saying if you're kind of forty and up in pick, you know, it, it's a pretty much a no-brainer to do. Yeah, to like. Uh... To me, if you're, I think if you're asking me right now, which of Lee or Hardaway, which there's a, which player there's a better chance of them moving before the deadline, I, I think it's Lee, because I feel like teams get antsy as as we get close to the deadline, and if you're a team that has a chance to add Vonley and Courtney Lee and the real sacrifice that you're making is cap space for this upcoming summer. Like, I don't know. I think those two guys together on certain teams in this league, like could make a difference in like, a, a, I don't know. I, 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 I am trepidatious to say it could make a difference in a playoff series, but, but that's what I mean. Teams sometimes when they get close to the deadline, you know, get a little antsy and they, they jump at something. 
I, I think that's a wait and see t- type of deal. Um, the more interesting conversation that I, that I wanted to have before we before we finished up is this Hardaway thing um, because I think we texted about this. I'm not 100% sure. But I have a theory that they are would consider attaching Frank to Hardaway to move that salary if it met, if they got some type of either young asset or draft asset back along with obviously um you know expiring money what do you think of that yeah so i think that this goes back to the point of well first i want to say this because we um before i even bring up Moutier's name and answering this i think there's actually like i wonder nowadays you can bet on it on anything like literally anything I wonder if you had odds that said Emmanuel Moutier and Fr- or Frank Nielakino or both, but at least one of them has to be on the Knicks in two years. What would the odds even be of that? I I think I think you could argue that you know for all this talk that we have, the odds might be quite high that neither of them are part of the long term future. Moutier, for the reasons we've discussed, he's, you know, um, in terms of as a player, there's a lot of things not to like about him. And then it is true, while we, we think there's an avenue for them to re-sign him, it's not as easy as it is if he had a, a team option. And then now I'll get into the answer to your actual question, and that is with Frank, I just think there's there just seems to be a lot of smoke that not everyone in the Knicks front office is completely sold on his value. And if that's the case, I think they're going to hope that the value, or I should say not sold on his value as a Nick for multiple years. And I think that's what people go crazy about. Cause when you talk about trading a player, what's going to happen is everyone who is a Frank supporter is going to say, here we go. The Knicks couldn't develop him and they gave up on him. But if you look at other teams around the league, so Daryl Morey on the Rockets or Danny Ainge on the Celtics or places that win and win consistently, the thing that they all do is they realize players don't just carry value for your team on, on, the, on the court. They might carry value by doing something like you described, by moving salary that allows you to then reinvest that salary in more productive players. So I think the Knicks, I don't think Tim Hardaway Jr. gets traded at the deadline because I think he, he carries more value as more of his salary ticks away and he's still, you know, 26. I think well, they go into the summer and they say, and they see what happens. And then if they get Kevin Durant, as we've talked about before, they're not, they're not going to be sitting there now saying, okay, we got Kevin Durant, a lottery pick, and a bunch of 19 and 20 year olds, let's go win a championship. They're going to say, <laughs> we need to get another piece on top of KP. That's what they're going to do. I'm, I just, I, that's what other, every other team who puts stars together does. And that's what other teams who have put stars together have had success and, doing. And you just, you just went around, you, you just went along, not a long winded way of saying, but I think there is a very significant chance that the, or let me rephrase that. There is a 
better than 50% chance that if Kevin Durant comes to the Knicks this summer, the Knicks, the draft pick that the Knicks end up with will not play a game for the Knicks. It doesn't matter if it's the first pick. It doesn't matter if it's the third pick. It doesn't matter if it's the seventh pick. I think if Kevin Durant comes here, that pick is gone. Yeah, it's very possible because, you know, like I said, I think they will be selling Durant on the idea that he's going to come here, win in New York, and become a legend by winning just one time in New York. Well, you know, he's... He's not. That doesn't mean you wait until 19-year-olds become 24 and are ready to develop five years later. Right? He, he, well, he's not waiting for it. I'll tell you that much. Right. Exactly. So that's that's the catch of it. But let's just say we took that whole part out of it. It still is a question of does Frank provide someone you turn into something else and like i said whether that's moving cap space that you can reinvest in players or getting a player like you suggest back that they like more i think you have to explore that that said i and maybe this will we can wrap up on what we both have talked about this week you already published your piece i want to publish mine early next week of the dangers of giving up on frank is that i think defense is still defense and fit. So meaning, you know, being a player who does, you know, the things you've outlined well in your piece, being a player that doesn't require the ball to be successful, who can um, defer to other scores, which the Knicks, it seems like Knox is likely to be a player that will be a high usage score and, and obviously KP. So if defense and fit are undervalued, and based on Frank being, as we have articulated <laughs> a few times now, one of the worst shooters in basketball, you could argue his market value isn't going to be a fair price for him going forward. So therefore, while yes, you can trade him to gain cap space by getting rid of Tim Hardaway Jr.'s contract, maybe by signing him to an extension at a very low reasonable cost price, also saves you cap space without trading him because you get value. You're going to get more value from him as he ages and in those other areas that the market might not price appropriately. And therefore you can use that savings the same way you would use the savings of attaching him to a contract to build, to add pieces. Yeah. And let me, before I, before I get to commenting on that, I just want to like for anybody who is unclear about what the your the other side of this argument is, which is the the trading him side. If you want to know the danger of what could happen if you don't trade him now, potentially, just go look at the 2015 draft. Julie Lokofer, Mario Hazonia, Emmanuel Moutier, Stanley Johnson, Frank Kaminsky. These are those are five top ten picks that I just named that their teams could not get anything for them um, and traded them for very, very little. Or like if in Frank Kaminsky's case, he's still on, you know, the Hornets, they could, they couldn't get anything for him if they wanted Um, Stanley Johnson, same thing with Detroit. So like, that's the danger. That's the danger is like, holy shit. There's still some mystery about this kid left. Um, And if we don't cash in on this now, and I think that's what I wrote in my piece, which is why if you put a gun to my head right now and said, do you think Frank will be a member of the team after February 7th? 
I'd have to think long and hard about it. I really would because yeah, I think, no, yeah. I'm I'm glad that you actually added that point because I think we talked about this a, a while ago on a, on a podcast, but it it's right. It's you every. I mean, you know me because my economics background. I put everything in financial terms, but no, it's but like it's, it's smart to do. You you have an asset that is either going to you know it buys hold or sell, right? So it's like I do think with two years left of. Um, Frank with team control, but those two years now become a little more expensive. You probably are around that breaking point of him still having some value left before, like you, you outlined those examples, he becomes something, you know, a former lottery pick that just doesn't carry value. And if you wait and you miss that point, well, now it, it you know, it, you, you missed your point to, to sell high. So that, yeah, I'm glad you raised that point because it's another thing to consider. Yeah, and and so <laughs> that being said, um, I I don't I if you're if you're re-signing Frank, let's say okay, there's two scenarios that play out here if they keep him, either his value continues to crater and then there's no conversation to be had because whatever either they just let him walk or they eventually trade him for some menial nothing asset or he makes good on the things that it seems like he will continue to make good on in no and so in that like optimal scenario he's getting maximum the justice winslow contract right so Justice Winslow signed. I think it was it was one of the last to sign before the deadline for this season to sign um, upcoming restricted free agents for the 2015 draft. I want to say, did he get three years, thirty? Yeah, I might remember. I'm I'm looking up right now. Um, I want to say he got three years, um, thirty nine million. If if that's, and I think that's on the yeah three years, thirty nine million. I think that's the absolute high end of what Frank could potentially get. I think, you know, maybe even if you want to go back a few more years, like um, the, the M, well, no, the MKG extension was a silly extension for Charlotte, but like, perfect example of a defense first player who, after however many it was, three or four years, the Hornets bet, like, all right, this guy's offense is going to come around. And it's funny that contract that uh, the MKG contract, like that's not looked at as a good contract, but that's also not looked at as like an albatross, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. So you well, could... and, and right, I, and I think what you yeah, it, it's just showing that ideally you want it's like anything that you buy, right? Like if you're going down to the Super Bowl or something, like you're going to pay a different price if the closer you get based on like, if you're a Patriot fan or something, you're, you know, you're going to pay a different price when you know the Patriots are playing yes. because that's your team and they're there versus a time in advance where you're not quite sure. And I think that's the, the deal here. The uncertainty in some ways can help you because you can, you can go into negotiations and say, well, yeah, we, you know, look at your, it's kind of one of those funny things like in arbitration it comes up in baseball where <laughs> there's this awkward situation of yeah, yeah. you have to go and tell your own player why he sucks yeah, and you don't yeah. have to pay him more. <laughs> but with Frank, it's kind of that way. You're going to be able to potentially next season 
start thinking about negotiating with him on the extension and basically say, look, like you're based on your past performance. No one's paying you much of anything, but in your head, you know, his value will probably come in those later years. So, you know, you're throwing out some numbers there and you, you start to say to yourself, okay, well, if how, how good does he even have to play to justify those types of annual salaries. And, and and so this is why I'm high on Frank at the end of the day. For for as bad as his true shooting as he his effective field goal percentage is every, it seems like everybody that like pays attention to like shot form and whatnot is like thinks his shot will will develop fine if you look at free throw percentage i mean despite the fact that i think he missed two free throws the other day his free throw percentage is like really really good that's a good indicator um if you again take out that that 16 game stretch in the middle of the season where he could literally couldn't hit anything um i think he was four for 27 or 28 from three for that stretch like he's a 40 percent shooter from three on the year if all you do is to augment his game from now until two years from now if all you do is you make him a 38 39 40 three-point shooter that's a player that you want on your team moving forward like full stop to to, to borrow a sam vicini line from his podcast that's it it's like you're you're that you don't need anything you like would it be nice to improve his finishing at the rim, um, to decrease his turnover percentage, to obviously continue to increase the defense, which has, has fallen off a little bit this year? Yes, yes, yes. All those things would be nice. If he's a 40% shooter from three, because at that point, if he's a 40% shooter from three or something close to it, that means you could leave him on the floor like for 20 minutes a game, 25 minutes a game against any team, pretty much any team in the NBA. And he'll give you obviously enough value on defense to to have value, and then you you just you know you can't leave him open. So right, right, and yeah. and then and, just, and, and that's that's probably too you know the the three point shooting to me is is really um, to kind of I guess come in full circle on our conversation to start with Moutier. I think that's really to the other area that there's a big difference, and that is oh, Moutier. Right. Like his improvement is coming, finishing those short mid range, like that little fall away shot that he somehow now makes. Yeah. And, and um, guess what? In a playoff series, any smart team is going to Tony Allen him and be like, yeah, there you go. Here, even take a step, right. take, a, so, take a few steps in so, from the arc. Exactly. Right. So with Frank, at least his shot profile is such that, you know, if he improves the same way, say, Moutier did, he's improving in an offensive way that you like better and is more sustainable to how you want to build your offense. And then I think we sort of alluded to it, but I just want to make sure, Oh, I hear a, a little one over there. Yeah. My, right? <laughs> my daughter just ran in cause my, uh, my wife opened the dryer cause uh, our load of laundry just got done drying. And my, my daughter prides herself on taking clothes out of the dryer and then going and finding one of us in the house and giving us our pieces of clothing one at a time. 
Oh, so I wasn't sure if you were just admitting that you record the podcast, kind of like Barry and Arnott makes life does it in the bathroom if you're in hiding in the laundry room, but you're saying she went to the laundry room and brought it to you. No, I'm, I'm at the, I'm at the, you've been in my house, so you know this. I'm at the great table in the kitchen and, and she is in the laundry room with my wife. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, anyway, so yes, Moutier's shot profile is not necessarily the thing that is going to um, translate uh, the best. Yeah. Right. And then I was just going to say the last point that I think we both made uh, this week that is, you know, all this stuff we're talking about the contract considerations and and you know potential this and that. It just still comes down to if you plan on because. We didn't even mention, funny enough, Dennis Smith Jr.'s name, even though that was like the hot topic by everyone. Even if Frank, if look at it the opposite way. If you had someone like Dennis Smith Jr.'s production, right, instead of Frank, the question you have to ask yourself is, do you want a scoring first guard who then is going to demand a different amount of salary? And is if, if we take out the salary, is going to demand a different amount of touches in the offense. Do you want that to be your third option on a championship team? Or do you want Frank to be the player that will be your fourth or fifth guy who makes the players around him better, like KP, Knox, and hopefully whether it's a 2019 lottery pick or it's a free agent, those are your top three scorers. And he's the one that helps them score. And I think that's a part that when you're comparing value of players is sometimes overlooked is yeah we know this guy can score can can maybe even i don't even want to say he can score more to suggest like scoring should be discounted i'm just saying he might actually be a better basketball player but you might not need a guy who's the third best player on your team you actually need a guy who can fit well into being your fourth or fifth best player and look let's just look at where the nba is at now we see the formula to how to win a championship you need two creators and you need shooters. And obviously, the more that those particular pieces can switch on the defensive end, all the better. Houston, James Harden, Chris Paul, shooters. Miami, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, shooters. Cleveland, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, shooters. Golden State, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, shooters. It's, it is the blueprint now. It will be the blueprint going forward. So if... if and, and and granted, the Knicks are going to have to do it a little differently because KP is not. You, I'm not going to give him that creator label, but essentially he is going to, and that's why he's going to need to improve his his playmaking a lot. Um, but that's a conversation for a different day. But essentially, you already have one of those guys. You already have one of those high usage guys. If you go on the theory that they are going to get one this summer or next summer or in the draft then guess what you need to do? You need to surround him with shooters. And ideally, again, like we see with um, Iguodala and um, and Draymond Green in Golden State, um, like we saw with, with Chris Bosh in Miami, if, that, if those shooters can do just enough playmaking, just enough playmaking to keep defenses honest, you're golden. And that's... Right. And, and, and if... It, and you need that to be a guy who does not demand the ball and more than that doesn't care if he gets the ball and is going to he'll do something with the ball if you need him to do something with the ball but 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 doesn't need to and doesn't really care that 
is the Frank Nilakina player profile. And that's, again, that was the crux of my argument in this piece, the piece that came out this week as to why they should want to really think very, 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 very long and hard um, about, about giving up on him, you know, at some point in the next two and a half weeks. So I, I hope they don't. I really do. I, I hope they don't. I just, um, but who knows? I don't know. We'll see. I guess. Yeah, no, we'll see. And I, I, I guess I'm always uh, the I. I hope they don't because I want, for all the reasons we said, Frank to stay here. But you know, like I think you would agree, if it's the right deal, it's the right deal. And I think that is always the toughest part to tease out when explaining when you're someone like us that like has you know we're out on Twitter on the website and trying to explain our view about players. It just really isn't black or white. Like it is possible you could want Frank to do well, believe in his long-term future, and but also realize there are situations that might make sense for the team to do something different. And all those same things can exist, even though they seem like they're conflicting. Yeah, and, and, and just to, to fully, you know, drive this point home, if you are sitting there on February um, 7th at uh, 2.30 p.m., and you're on the phone with Phoenix, and they're, you know, and Robert Sarver is getting in the ear of, of James Jones or whoever the hell is running that team right now, and they're like, um, okay, uh, we'll we'll go ahead and, and we'll give you, um, you know, uh, Darrell Arthur and uh, Dragon Bender's um, expiring salaries. I think they probably need one more expiring to make it work. And uh, yeah, we'll take on. We'll take on uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. for you and uh, give us Frank and uh, we'll give you next year's pick, um, top three protected, and then the year after that, it's going to be unprotected. Guess what? Make the deal. Like, make the deal. Um, Because, like, there's going to be – if there's a point where, like, some stupid team blatantly overpays for, like, as much as I believe in Frank, there may be a deal out there that – that you need to make so yeah exactly luckily uh basketball is not like marriage you can you can be committed to someone but if someone better comes by you're, you're <laughs> well within your rights to go and, and uh <laughs> i like how you say me. i like how you say basketball isn't like marriage because i think for a lot of people that's exactly what marriage is like you happen to have been married to your your high school sweetheart that you've been with for you know however many years um, you know, I, I I'm going to close with this cause I was thinking about it last night as I was getting in a tiff over, um, certain, certain Twitter comments. I feel like when the media tweets stuff about the Knicks, it's like, they're the man in the relationship. And like, I'm, I'm like the woman and it's like the man, <laughs> the man is saying, so, the man at the, after he says something is like, what did I say? I didn't say anything. And the woman's like you know what you said. And the man is like, legitimately, no, I really don't know what I said. And the woman is like, you know what you said. Yes. That's, that's me on Nick's Twitter. I am, I am yeah, that... the female in the relationship. Oh God. All right. Well, um, I think that, that both our examples prove that we're, uh, we're ready to stop, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. I gotta get to, uh, I gotta get to Staten Island. My, my mom is going to watch, um, Scarlet Ray, today while we go sneak off and see um, I think we're going to go see if Beale Street could talk 
Um, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, which I'm excited about. Um, I gave, I gave a, I don't know if you saw my tweet, I gave A Star is Born a second watch last night. You, I, you have not seen the movie, right? No, I, I haven't. I've been wanting to see it because um, Emily's listened to the soundtrack a little bit. I, I forget then. So you said second watch meeting. You wanted to give another chance because you didn't like it the first no, time? No, no, I, I loved it the first time, and I wanted to give it a second watch because, like, I had elevated it so high in my mind. And I'm like, let me give it one more watch to make sure that it's it's valid and, and that it's deserving of this. And it w- I, I think I may have enjoyed it more the second time. And, you know, other than the uh, nudity and copious alcohol and drug use, it's really a family film. So you could, <laughs> you could feel free to watch it with, with both of the girls. Well, you know what we, wa- we did watch um, that you had recommended was Eighth Grade. We watched that last night. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we, so we like, I, li- I think I liked it a little bit more than my wife did, but I just thought that they, you know, they, it's one of those things they're they're trying to capture, obviously, what it's like nowadays with the the different social aspects you have to deal with with social media versus the traditional things of trying to fit in in school. And I thought easy to mess it up because you know they have scenes, for instance, where it's a you know it's an eighth grade girl and she's literally just like staring at her phone at Instagram, and you're kind of like, oh, does this work or not? But like. I just felt like there's one scene she goes to a popular girl's house for a party and she's walking into the house and then she has to put on her bathing suit and go out to the pool in the back. Great and scene. I'm literally Great sitting there feeling like, oh my God, what, like I'm the one walking out there. Like what is going to happen? Like, and I thought the way they kind of almost made you as a viewer feel that anxiety that comes up when you're that age, I thought they did a good job doing that. So, so we liked it. Oh, I, I felt it when she walked out and it was like a green, like a hideous one piece green bathing suit. I felt it because I was, I was the fat kid at all those pool parties. Um, and... Well, you know, what's funny. I said to Emily the last night that I think what's what the problem is that we sort of all lack self-awareness in a sense of I'm not saying for you personally, because I don't know what you're like in high school. But I was saying to her for most girls that I know. They all think that they are that main character in that movie, meaning even the most popular girl who got everything they wanted thinks when they go back, oh, no, that was me. Like I was I, I hated myself when I walked out. And it's like, I don't know, sometimes I think because like everyone has that thought in their head, like because obviously we all deal with anxiety different ways. But because we all have that thought that we somehow all think we're that person who is like the lowest person on the totem pole we maybe lose the awareness for the people who actually are like that to like be able to you know recognize that and help them out but i was thinking that when watching that i'm like i bet you if you showed this movie to 100 men 100 women you would have a high percentage that would be like that was me higher than it probably should be and 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 really to bring this full circle um frank nilakina if you're listening to this you are not the fat girl in the green bathing suit (laughs) Do not think that you are. Have confidence in your abilities. Have confidence in your shot. Um, we're with you, brother. You, you, no one's staring at you. Just go into that pool with confidence, man. You got this. It's all good. Um, all right. We'll get off to Staten Island, and we'll, uh, we'll catch up again soon. <laughs> Sounds good, bud. I'll talk to you later. Peace. All right.